Years ago now, I read an article by Malcolm Gladwell that was attempting to understand some of the dynamics behind the rise in school shootings in the past couple decades. In it, he references the work of a Stanford sociologist from the 1970s by the name of Mark Gravenetter. Gravenetter had proposed a theory for explaining why people in certain situations will do things that seems to go against what they say they think is right. For example, why will some people who would not normally tend towards violence join in a riot when one is happening? Why did some German people who would not previously have expressed a desire to kill all the Jews join in with the activities of the Third Reich? That sort of thing. Gravenetter's proposal was that everyone has a certain threshold for how many other people need to be acting in a certain way before they will join in. The person who starts the riot has a threshold of zero. They are just ready to go. Then someone with the threshold of one sees that first rock go through a window and and they pick one up too, and so on, until enough people are joining in that the action has surpassed the threshold of people who would never think to do something illegal or violent. But since a hundred, or a thousand, or a million are, well... Gladwell quotes Gravenetter discussing a study of boys who had gotten arrested. Most, Gravenetter writes did not think it right to commit illegal acts or even particularly want to do so. But group interaction was such that none could admit this without a loss of status. In our terms, their threshold for stealing cars was low because daring masculine acts bring status in those circles and reluctance to join in once others have carries the high cost of being labeled a sissy. I wanted to read that quote as we begin the first main section of Paul's letter to the Romans, because one of the main themes of this section is sin and what God is going to do about sin. When you combine our individualistic culture with the common Protestant tendency to read everything through the lens of me getting to go to heaven when I die, you sometimes get a misunderstanding of sin that causes us to misread what Paul is saying in books like Romans. I'm repeating myself from the backdrop here, even though I'm sure all of you have listened to it several times already, but we tend to hear the word sin and think of a lowercase plural word, sins, the mistakes and assorted bad things that I have done that make me imperfect and make God mad at me. When Paul uses the word, though, it's usually as a singular word with a capital S, sin. It's less a thing that I do than an almost personal force that has power over me and over the world and that influences what I and others do and what the world is like. In fact, N.T. Wright says that Paul tends to use the word almost in the way the word Satan is sometimes used, a being that can be said to reign over the world in some sense and to enslave others. And that's exactly what Gravenetter was describing, although I am quite sure he would not have thought so. Something that goes beyond individual wrong choices and becomes a force of its own that can influence people to go along with the flow, even if they might not have wanted to do so left to their own devices. Social pressure that transcends any individual and which results in people doing things they never would have thought or wanted to do otherwise. Sin, a force that distorts and corrupts and which convinces us that this is just the way things are done. So we go along, often without even thinking about it. But even if we do think about it, there's that fear that if I don't, I might lose something. I might lose social status in the example of the arrested kids in Gravenetter's study. But there are other losses as well. Sin is what causes well-meaning Claremont liberals to oppose affordable housing because, you know, 
we don't want to change the character of our community and also our property values, but that's usually not said out loud. Sin is what causes churches who have a stated goal of racial diversity to have single-digit minority staff members on a total staff of hundreds because, you know, don't we want the best candidate for each individual job? Hypothetically, of course, not singling out any one church here. Sin is what causes cynical politicians to use fear for your safety and the safety of your family as a driver of pro-gun, anti-migrant, and anti-LGBTQ rights legislation. And sin is what causes those appeals to be effective, no matter what the actual data says about safety. Sin is what creates cultures of injustice and oppression, inequality and violence, fear and selfishness and greed, whether in a business or a political system or corrupt police unit or a church, with the result that well-meaning people join the group and soon are acting in ways they never thought they would, because this is how things are done here. And the result is not simply that individual people become sinners. The result is that the goodness of God's creation, the life that God intends for the world, gets defaced and destroyed, corrupted beyond all recognition. This is what Paul is talking about and reacting to when he says this in Romans 1, 18 to 25. For the anger of God is unveiled from heaven against all the ungodliness and injustice performed by people who use injustice to suppress the truth. What can be known of God, you see, is plain to them, since God has revealed it to them. Ever since the world was made, his invisible power and deity have been seen and known in the things he made. As a result, they have no excuse. They knew God, but didn't honor him as God or thank him. Instead, they learned to think in useless ways, and their unwise hearts grew dark. They declared themselves to be wise, but in fact they became foolish. They swapped the glory of the immortal God for the likeness of the image of mortal humans and of birds, animals, and reptiles. So God gave them up to uncleanness in the desires of their hearts, with the result that they dishonored their bodies among themselves. They swapped God's truth for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul starts his discussion not with individual mistakes, as you can see from those verses, but with the core, capital S, sin of idolatry. Instead of giving glory and honor to God, they give it to some aspect of creation. And just as we saw in the Old Testament with the prophet Jeremiah, if you were with us when we went through that book together, idolatry inevitably leads to what Paul mentions first, injustice. When humans who were God's planned partners in spreading the justice of God to every corner of creation, when they decide instead to direct their honor not at the true God, but at the creation, the result is that instead of God's justice permeating all things, injustice infiltrates the world. This is one of the ways that idolatry puts the world on paths that lead to death. And to be clear, the consequences of this injustice are not just felt by individuals, but as we can see in the world around us every single day, When injustice infiltrates the whole world, the whole world suffers for it. The dream for a good creation in harmony with God's character becomes the nightmare of systemic evil, pervasive selfishness, defaced and destroyed nature, and ultimately, death. Death for the humans responsible, death for the creation that is in need of the justice humans were supposed to bring, but didn't. 
And this whole framework is crucial for us to understand where Paul begins here with God's wrath and anger over ungodliness and injustice. This is not schoolmarm God wrapping knuckles with a ruler because someone threw a pencil or torturing that student for eternity, I guess. This is God grieving over the comprehensive decay of what was supposed to be a good and beautiful creation with capital S sin resulting in the suffering not only of humans, but everything from oceans to insects to farm animals to trees. When you take in the unfathomable scope of the problem, including the specific examples of it that we see in the newspaper every single day, it becomes much easier to understand how wrath and anger are exactly the proper responses from a God who loves creation passionately and has promised to bring goodness into every corner of it. Sin is not my personal foibles and imperfections. Sin is a big freaking deal. God cannot remain good and ignore sin, capital S, sin. It's that simple. God must do something about it. That's the problem Paul's setting up and which Paul will answer in future chapters of Romans. The result of this idolatry, Paul says, is that God gave them up to the consequences of it. God gave them up to the desires of their hearts, he says above. And then skipping down a few verses, I address the verses I'm skipping and the rather large issue they bring up on this week's episode of The Backdrop, by the way. But they are an example in Paul's argument. They're not the main point. And we're going to continue on with the main point uh, in the sermon here. So if you're interested in that other bit, that'll be on The Backdrop this week. But skipping down to verse 28. Moreover, just as they did not see fit to hold on to knowledge of God, God gave them up to an unfit mind so that they would behave inappropriately. They were filled with all kinds of injustice, wickedness, greed, and evil. They were full of envy, murder, enmity, deceit, and cunning. They became gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, self-important, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, unwise, unfaithful, unfeeling, uncaring. What I think is most striking here is that the punishment, such that it is, consists of God allowing people to follow the path they've chosen to walk. The dishonor and injustices that are listed here are not meant to be understood as further sins that they are going to be subsequently punished for. Doing these things is the punishment. Paul has, just as Jeremiah did, a strong sense that walking paths of idolatry inevitably leads to injustice and suffering and ultimately death. Those are the natural consequences of idolatry itself. As just one obvious example, worshiping money leads to several of the things Paul lists here, greed and being uncaring and unfeeling towards fellow humans and creation as a whole, which as Christmas movies from It's a Wonderful Life to Elf will tell you, that sort of greed actually destroys one's humanity from the inside out. Becoming an unfeeling, uncaring, greedy person is the punishment for idolizing money. Becoming that sort of person is almost like dying before death because it means losing the life that God had intended humans to enjoy together and with God. And then, ultimately, yes, your money doesn't save you and you die. Or you cryo-freeze your head hoping that science will bring you back as a cyborg or whatever. The way Paul communicates this is by repeating that God gives them up to these things. N.T. Wright points us to Psalm 81 to understand this idea of God giving them up and how it is the outworking 
of the sin of idolatry. Let me read that psalm from verse 8 on because it sums up Paul's point so well, I think. So this is Psalm 81, starting in verse 8. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. There's the idolatry piece. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. There's the life God wants to offer. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. And then here's the quote, the consequence. Verse 12. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Then I would quickly subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate Yahweh would cringe before them and their doom would last forever. I would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. In this Psalm, we see a God who longs to give people life. If only they would trust in Yahweh to do so. Open your mouth wide and I would fill it. But instead they don't listen. And so God gives them over to their own, quote unquote, wisdom. Wisdom that will lead only to death and not to the life God offers. To quote N.T. Wright, the creator allows all to reap what they have sown. The punishment not only fits the crime, it directly results from it as well. And so, to repeat, the long list of things in the final verses of chapter 1 in Romans, they're not Paul listing lowercase sins people are guilty of. They are Paul listing out all the ways humanity is defaced and debased by the core, capital S, sin of idolatry. The result of idolatry is slavery to sin, which results in people behaving in innumerable ways that distort their humanity, that dehumanize them by making them do what is contrary to God's character. These are, in other words, behaviors that are destructive to those who practice such things, but also to their victims and to creation as a whole. The punishment for idolatry is that humans participate in the destruction of their own selves and of everything around them when they were created to build all of that up. Paul is not saying that every individual does all these things or that this is an exhaustive list. As Wright says, his intention is to paint a picture in the richest verbal colors and patterns that he can. And we should also note that these are not arbitrary rules. These are behaviors that are inherently destructive, that result in humans and creation becoming a shell of what the creator God intended, like the lost souls in the Pixar movie Soul who've been completely hollowed out of life by whatever has captured their attention. Or the ringwraiths in the Lord of the Rings, who once were great kings, but whose greed for power has reduced them to empty shadows. As Paul says at the beginning of this passage, this makes God mad. Not in the way I get mad when one of our kids clumsily makes a mess by not eating over their plates. That says more about me than anything else. But in the deeper pit of my stomach, twisting rage mixed with sorrow that I get, and I, I know some of you get, when we see migrant children separated from their families, comfortable Claremont folks trying to block housing and social services for the homeless with yard signs that say, save Claremont, or people kneeling before a cross with their assault rifles before the January 6th coup attempt. God loves creation deeply. God grieves the ways that sin has defaced and destroyed, corrupted and crushed it. God rages against the injustice that permeates it. God will do something 
to fix it. But we haven't gotten to that part of Paul's letter yet. For now, I think Romans invites us to mirror our God, to reflect our God, to affirm our deep love for creation, to grieve the ways that sin has defaced and destroyed, corrupted and crushed it, to rage against the injustice that permeates it. When we were together, we spent a time in Lament where we, would, we chatted into Zoom uh, some of the things that we are grieving. We named the people, organizations, things, places, areas of life, relationships, workplaces, animals, nature, systems, whatever else that have been corrupted and defaced, made less than what God had intended because of sin. And we brought those before God in prayer. So I would invite you as a response to this sermon as well to do just that to take some time to lament and to think about and respond to the ways that the world is broken by sin and to ask God to do something about it.